BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends. Happy holidays and welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. As always, a lot happening and a lot to talk about in our nation's capital although much of the week's focus was on the never-seen-before destruction from the wave of tornadoes that hit the heartland. President Biden went down in person to see the damage and deliver federal help. But he's not receiving much help from Senator Joe Manchin, who still stands as the chief obstacle to getting Biden's Build Back Better plan passed by the end of the year. Now, some are predicting it'll never pass at all. Meanwhile, the January 6th Select Committee is in high gear, holding former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in contempt of Congress for refusing to answer their subpoena to testify. And Chris Wallace tells Fox News, take this job and shove it. All that and more for today's panel. So let's jump right in with Jason Dick, Deputy Editor of CQ Roll Call. Hi, Jason. Morning, everybody. Cherie Stante, White House correspondent for HuffPost. Hi, Sharish. Hey there, Bill. And from outside the Beltway, always welcome someone outside the Beltway, Melanie Mason, joining us from Los Angeles, national political correspondent for the LA Times. Hi, Melanie. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, CNN uh, this morning, on CNN this morning, uh, Elisa Farah, former communications director for the Trump White House, uh, revealed a text that she had sent Mark Meadows on January 6th, along with texts that he received from uh, members of Congress, from the president's members of the president's family, and from some anchors on Fox News. Liz Cheney read some of those texts aloud at the uh, big hearing of the January 6th committee, joined by Congressman Jamie Raskin. Mark, protesters are literally storming the Capitol, breaking windows on our doors, rushing in. Is Trump going to say something? There's an armed standoff at the House chamber door. We are all helpless. Here's some more. This one came from Laura Ingraham. It was identified. Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy. Brian Kilmeade, please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished. Sean Hannity, can he make a statement? Ask people to leave the Capitol. Donald Trump Jr., he's got to condemn this excrement ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough. Meadows responding, I'm pushing it hard, I agree. Donald Trump Jr., we need an oval office address. He has to lead now. It has gone too far and gotten out of hand. So, Jason, if we learn nothing else from that, we learn that a lot of people see Mark Meadows as right in the middle of things and the person who has the most influence on Donald Trump. 
that's certainly one way to look at it. I mean, another way to look at it is uh, if you covered Meadows in any capacity when he was a member of Congress, uh, he gave out his number like candy at Halloween. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm surprised there weren't, uh, you know, so, sort of like writings in the bathroom for for an insipid conversation, call Mark at blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, Meadows has always been this person who presents himself as very accessible, gives out his phone number, talks to the press, talks to, you know, his, uh, his, his Democratic colleagues as well as the Republican colleagues. And so it's to me, it's, it's sort of not a surprise that a lot of people had that access. Uh, and then to your, to your broader point, Bill, that people, you know, were trying desperately to uh, get him to intercede on behalf of the president. Well, they should have known better because Meadows uh, is not your kind of Rahm Emanuel, Leon Panetta type, uh, you know, chief of Jim Baker type, uh, type of chief of staff who uh, has his own power base and exercises it and acts as a gatekeeper. He's really more of an enabler and and somebody who tells the president what he wants. And then it got to the point of January 6th, and then it revealed how little influence he really did have. Right. Uh, I find it interesting that the pleas on the part of these people are not to save democracy or to save the Capitol, but to save Donald Trump's legacy or reputation. Uh, but Sharice, the president, President Biden took the unusual step of ste- of stepping into this, actually, uh, telling you reporters at the White House uh, that he thought um, Mark Meadows deserved to be held in contempt. What does that say about... Um, Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice likelihood to act? I don't know if we can uh, draw a direct uh, inference from that necessarily, mm-hmm. but we have seen the president been, been pretty aggressive about saying, look, you know, uh, what happened on January 6th was a travesty and it can never happen again. And uh, things that relate to January 6th in the last administration they don't deserve executive privilege because of the gravity of the situation. And also unsaid, but kind of implied is, you know, uh, plotting a coup does not get you executive privilege. That's mm-hmm. not a thing. And so uh, I, I was not really surprised the, that the president said that. I mean, he, he is prone to saying things off the cuff um, sometimes. But in, in this situation, yeah, he, he's thinking that this, this is important and they ought to they ought to be looking at everything Mark Meadows did. And if Mark Meadows doesn't help, then he ought to be prosecuted for it. Uh, pe- people were surprised how quickly the Justice Department turned around on the Bannon indictment. So, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll see. People are predicting, oh, this is different. He's a chief of staff. You can't really go there. Well, I mean, look what Meadows has already said in his book. And he's, <laughs> he already turned over a bunch of incredibly yeah. incriminating texts and, and emails. So we'll see. Uh, it also shows that Biden's following this pretty closely, right? Mean- oh, absolutely. Uh, that There's no doubt about that. I mean, it, it's interesting. Biden says stuff. And then when we try to get the uh, the press office to say, well, is the Justice Department <laughs> doing anything or uh, is there communication? Well, you know, that's up to the Justice Department. This <laughs> is the darkest day in democracy. You know, the president's concerned, but we're not going to get into, uh, you know, so they have their they have their. <laughs> They're talking points on that. But yeah. it, it has been interesting to see just how um, okay they are with calling what happened, using the terminology now that, you know, it, it, that's out there. This is basically a coup attempt. Right. And, um, you know, this ought not happen in a democracy. 
Melanie, uh, eyebrows were certainly raised by the text that came from Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, uh, because uh, they, at the same time on their TV shows on Fox News, uh, they were putting down the seriousness of the attack on the Capitol, uh, but they were frantically reaching out to Mark Meadows. Uh, when these texts came out, Sean Hannity uh, took a different line of defense. How dare you release my text? Here he is. By the way, where is the outrage in the media over my private text messages being released again publicly? Do we believe in privacy in this country? Apparently not. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, Melanie. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's an odd bit of pearl clutching. Um, I know that there's obviously been quite a few news stories uh, that Fox has covered um, pretty in-depth that have required uh, looking at people's <laughs> private text messages. So um, to, for that to be the, the point of outrage, I think, is, is pretty interesting. But I think there's just this sort of cognitive dissonance overall about how sort of I think the Fox News hosts tried to explain away the the difference in tone that they had in these private messages as, as opposed to how they were on the air both that night and then of course 11 months later. Um, and I think what for me watching this, what this uh, really showed is it, it kind of brought you back to that day on January 6th and it reminded you of, of, of the panic that people felt even watching this at home, not to, you know, not to say even at the Capitol even. Um, and, and so it, it, if, if you're watching this, uh, at least in good faith, it, it brings back that rush of emotions of just how unprecedented, just how terrifying that day was. Of course, the in good faith being, I think, the key line there. I think that if you're watching this and you are a Fox News host or if you're sort of their key audience, um, do they? I think that they're very willing to sort of accept what is sort of a dissonant message of, you know, we thought this was terrible in private, but, but not that big a deal in public. Um, and I think that that goes to show that when you are in these sort of media bubbles, as the country is right now, um, I don't think that this core audience of Fox is going to abandon their favorite news hosts because these text messages have come out. No, but it does really establish, doesn't it, and confirm that several of the Fox news hosts, we had Brian Kilmeade in here and probably Tucker Carlson, do serve uh, as sort of informal advisors to the White House while they're talking about them on television. Well, look, if if I had text messages that were saying that this is damaging us, right? I mean, there's this sense yeah, that we're all right. in this together um, right. to an administration official, I would be fired. Uh, but the truth is, <laughs> is that, uh, you know, journalism is not like medicine or it's not like law, right? I mean, there is not a professional board that you would report this to and say this violates our ethics. Um, and generally, since I believe in the First Amendment, I think that that is a good thing, right? That there is not necessarily these these universal standards. There are certainly ethical standards that we as as reporters um, all try to hold ourselves to. But the truth is, is that there's no body that's going to adjudicate that. And so therefore, you can have these very prominent uh, journalists at Fox News do things that I think that other reporters would see as totally in violation of what are best practices as reporters. And there's no real consequences so long as their bosses don't see anything wrong with what they were doing. Jason, would you fire one of your of your White House reporter? You found that he was uh, sitting in the Oval Office giving Trump advice. Yes, um, and and I think the the I mean, if as as much power as I have to fire somebody, <laughs> yes, I, I understand. At, at, at a minimum, they would be uh, you know uh, doing markup duty for the uh, Indian Affairs Committee or something like that uh, <laughs> uh, 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 short, shortly thereafter. But I mean, I, you know, to, to Melanie's point about like the, you know, the, there is a, a, a moment of reaction and then there was this sort of backup once they kind of remembered the ratings and the business and, and you know, the, the sort of the facade that they've constructed. 
represented uh, at at Fox, uh, and even among some Republican members too, is that you know in the moment when you saw this horrific attack, they acted like human beings. They were they were like, oh my god, this is this is not something that like we've ever seen. Holy cow, we've got to get this stopped. And then once the dust settled, mm-hmm. and you know they said, oh, only about five or six people have been killed, so we can you know kind of get back to business as usual here. Um, and and then you know that's when the sort of the cover up and uh, they became implicit in this cover up of this attack on democracy. And that, I think that's the thing that's the most you know disturbing to me. And I know we're going to talk about Chris Wallace a little later. Uh, is that there? There is this. They they just won't budge. You know from from this business model of really getting people pissed off uh, and and focused on on how Biden is this villain and Democrats are are their their enemy uh, yeah. not 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 the people trying to overthrow the government or trying to kill people in the speaker's lobby but like the the opposite political party and that's just that's what's so hard about listening to this and, and covering this story. Uh, yeah, let's resist the temptation to get into Chris Wallace right now. Save that, as you say, for a little bit later. But I want to come back to Wednesday. Uh, Sharish, you were on Air Force One uh, covering the president's visit to Kentucky down there with him. Um, can you describe for us what you what you saw? It was it was out of this world. It was crazy. You know, I've, you know I'm from Florida. I've spent most of my career down there. So I'm used to seeing hurricanes and hurricanes do bad damage, of course. But the, what these tornadoes did was unbelievable. I mean, on, on both sides of the road we were driving through, there was not a structure standing, right? Mm. The things were absolutely flattened. Not only were they flattened, but all their contents had been pulled out and strewn all over the place. There, were, there was home insulation in the trees, in the tree branches. Um, bricks had come down. There were just these piles of rubble everywhere. People were rooting through them, sitting in front of them. And, you know, this is the sort of thing that, uh, that this president kind of does best. He's, he empathizes with people. He talks to them uh, like people. He hugs them. So, you know, it, it, was, it was probably, it, from a political view, it was probably a good moment for him. But, man, um, it, I cannot even imagine that happening to me or, or people I know. It was, uh, it, it was really kind of scary. Seeing that yep. these things came out of nowhere, and all of a sudden, you know, everything that you've worked for for your whole life is gone, and people were sitting there not knowing what to do. Yeah, unbelievable video that we saw uh, from those, as you say, the communities where nothing, nothing was left standing. And Jason, this brought an unusual moment uh, in Washington, an unusual comment from the Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, about President Biden's response. President Biden cut through the red tape to approve our request at an accelerated pace, providing the rapid support we need to recover. Oh, my God, Jason. Uh, Didn't hear much from Rand Paul, however. No, uh, not at all. But, you know, Mitch McConnell is um, always knows when to sort of cut a deal. I always knows when to, you know, say things at the right time uh, for his own, you know, he knows the politics of his state very well. And he, I think that, you know, underneath it all, I mean, he obviously knows that this is a time when you need everybody sort of on the same page. And to his credit, you know, knows that like there are, there's going to be plenty of times when he's going to drive the the White House and the Democratic Party insane 
with whether it's hanging, you know, um, stalling judicial nominations or or sort of gleefully celebrating the, you know, kind of apparent demise of Build Back Better, uh, as he did on the floor yesterday, the Senate floor. But in this case, I mean, his state is hurting and he knows that, you know, he knows that Biden is the type of person who is going to try to get everything, you know, like, you know, sort of in order and aid there and and to his credit sort of tipped his hat to it. And meanwhile, this is Rand Paul, a remarkably silent Rand Paul who voted against uh, federal help for uh, Hurricane Sandy and other natural disasters, basically saying states should be on their own, find the money somewhere else. Awkward position for Rand Paul. Oh, oh, for sure. And and this, you know, this shows sort of the limits of, of uh, you know, the, the libertarian philosophy here of uh, every, every person to himself or herself. So, Melanie, if you look at it, I mean, Joe Biden has been hit with a, a flood, if you will, of natural disasters, the horrific wildfires in California, right? The tornadoes. This is not the first. These are the worst, but not the first wave of tornadoes. The flooding, the hurricanes. Uh, it's like locusts are the only thing lacking yet, right? But but it's a real been a real challenge for him, right? But this is unfortunately, I think that this is our our new normal. I mean, it, in some ways, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell's words about President Biden reminded me of uh, Governor Gavin Newsom speaking about Donald Trump uh, yeah. back when we had the horrific wildfires. Uh, the truth is, right. is that partisanship sort of dissipates um, when disaster comes your way. And the truth is, is that disaster is coming uh, more and more often. I do think that there is this impulse, and I think an understandable one to say, you know, this is not the time of politics when people are trying to make sense of how their lives were destroyed. But it does feel like every time that one of these horrific events happen, um, particularly as we're seeing more and more extreme weather events that we are uh, potentially losing an opportunity to be talking about maybe some of the larger causes. And I think that particularly there's this reticence perhaps to talk about um, you know, climate and some of the, the, the broader causes because it looks maybe a little gauche to start talking about um, policy or, or political causes um, at this moment. But it does feel like whether it is President Biden or President Trump, the truth is, is that now we are uh, in, in, in a cycle now of there is no just one disaster season. The disaster season right. is, is all four seasons of the year. And, um, mm-hmm. and it feels like it's only accelerating. So yes, this is a, this was a right. rough first year in office for president Biden on this front, but I don't think that he can anticipate things getting any better just looking at our track record so far. Right. And, and climate change is here and with climate change, uh, disasters like this are going to continue and probably get even worse um, before we take a break here, um, there has been something hanging around Washington uh, at the Congress for a while. Build Back Better, it's called. It's now passed the House, but it's stuck in the Senate. And Sharish, the president yesterday seemed to indicate that he accepts the reality it ain't going to happen this year. Right. Well, that's one of those things where um, the really the, the most important long-term stuff in that bill is probably having to do with climate change and, uh, and, and dealing with the consequences of that. And, and I guess, you know, whether that happens next week or in two months, probably in the long term doesn't matter that much. Uh, politically, um, I, I don't know. I, I think we, within the Beltway, get all hung up about, well, this bill didn't pass. It's a disaster for, for the Democrats or the Republicans or whatever. And outside, people have no idea 
mm-hmm. what what bill is being considered when and what's in it or why they should possibly care. Uh, if, if I could, though, uh, on, the, on the point of, cl- on, of climate change, you know, I covered Jeb Bush in Florida for eight years. And I remember when he went out and got uh, a hybrid SUV and was very proudly showing that a Republican governor um, could do his part to deal with, with energy conservation and, and huh. climate change, et cetera. Charlie Crist, Republican governor of Florida at the time, and, uh, and Arnold Schwarzenegger hosted a climate summit. Right in Miami to deal with uh, to deal with these issues, and then suddenly, like like a, a light switch, and Republican Party became the party of this is not an issue, this is not a problem, it's all a hoax, and we're never going to do anything. And I thought, you know, when these things start hitting red states, that's when we'll see a change. And I think I'm wrong. I, I think we're going to yeah, deal with yeah. climate change the same way we deal with uh, school shootings, which is we don't do anything; nothing can be done. Because there isn't, a, there are not, there will never be sixty-one votes in the Senate in order to make something happen. Right. You could also mention the role of uh, John McCain and George W. Bush, both of whom were climate change believers and thought uh, the United States should take action. Uh, again, their party um, <laughs> never went never went along with them. Uh, Jason, you've pointed out that uh, delay on Build Back Better is not the only thing happening in the Senate. There's been a long delay led by Ted Cruz on uh, ambassadorial appointments. Any progress there? Things loosening up? Um, so, you know, th- this this delay has been a almost a year long, you know, in, in the making. And a lot of it uh, that that Cruz in particular has been leading is about uh, this Nord Stream 2 pipeline in in Europe. And he, he does not think that the United States should be incentivizing a Russian pipeline to to Europe, uh, and so he and and several other uh, of his colleagues, uh, Josh Hawley, uh, Mike Lee, has, has, has sort of chipped in, have, have helped sort of <clears throat> blockade, particularly diplomatic nominees. And you know, this sounds like a little inside baseball until you realize that it was only yesterday that Nicholas Burns, who had been uh, nominated to be our top envoy to China. Uh, was confirmed. And also he was confirmed overwhelmingly. He was confirmed with 75 votes. So, I mean, this this is one of those like sort of basic, you know, governance things that is being compromised by this totally intractable kind of um, opposition. And, and it, it's really damaging uh, government. I mean, we're, yes, we're, you know, every president has hiccups and, and problems with the nomination process. But Biden's, I mean, his top envoy to China are potentially our, our, you know, really our biggest rival on the global stage was just confirmed yesterday. And it's almost Christmas. It's just insane that this that this is a way that you run government. Um, But here we are. And uh, they, they did confirm a few of the of these nominees uh, last night. Uh, it looks like there might be a kind of a long day ahead of the Senate in, in confirming uh, Schumer. Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, has been hesitant to to sort of knuckle down and say like, okay, we're going to be here for ninety six hours straight. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, uh, uh, order some takeout pizza because we're just going to keep voting, uh, which I think would would really alleviate the situation to get tough like that. But it sounds like they're going to do a big round of nominees and then probably go home for the for the season. But it, it doesn't eliminate the problem of having to go through this ridiculous process to, to just get your basic staff in, in place. And it means that um, the ambassadors to many of our, not just China, but also many of our major allies, there's no ambassador there now because of 
this hold that Ted Cruz and others have put on the process. Uh, and for a personal note, it does get personal with the Bill Press pod because one of those people that's been held up for a year is our own Chris Liu, um, who ha- was nominated as a deputy ambassador to the United Nations. And for some ungodly reason, he's on Ted Cruz's list. And so he's been in limbo for over a year now. And Chris, we hope that uh, we hope you get your nomination and com- I mean, your confirmation pretty soon and can get to work serving the people of the United States. On our panel today, Sharice Stati from HuffPost, Melanie Mason, the LA Times, Jason Dick from CQ Roll Call. Let's take a quick break here, and then we'll be back and cover some of the rest of the news of the week here on today's Roundtable. And today's podcast, today's Roundtable, is brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the great men and women of the Teamsters Union. Under President Jim Hoffa, they are America's largest and most diverse labor union, representing everybody, as they say, in the American workforce from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. We thank the members of the Teamster for their great work building America, and particularly for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And we're back here on the Bill Press Pod uh, this uh, Friday, December 17, with today's panel, Jason Tick from CQ Roll Call, Sharice Date, uh, covering the White House for HuffPost, and Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for the LA Times. Melanie California's Kamala Harris, former Attorney General of California, now Vice President of the United States, looking ahead at 2024. She says she and Joe Biden have never even discussed whether or not he might run for re-election. Melanie, you've covered Kamala. Can we believe that? Uh, Perhaps they have not said the technical words, are you going to be running again in 2024? but yes, I think that that probably strains credulity that this was a conversation in some way that didn't come up or that hasn't been sort of talked uh, around. But the truth is, is that what other what other kind of response do we uh, expect when she gets a, a question like that? 
Uh, she is incredibly aware, as soon as she was named his vice presidential nominee, um, that looking like lo- that Biden's loyal attendant was lieutenant was her number one job. And so any way that she could potentially look like she was looking out for her own political ambitions, political future, um, she was very, very wary to do any to do anything that might appear that way. And so, um, of course, she's going to talk about how they're focused on the work ahead, that all this 2024 chatter that's going on is just political insiders. Um, but the idea that this is not something that is very much on her mind and the mind of her uh, advisors and inner circle, I think, um, is, is a little bit tough to swallow. Right. Now, Sharice, inside the White House, I know there's, a, in fact, I uh, spoke with Jen Psaki, press secretary at our White House correspondence holiday party the other night. You know, there's some uh, frustration over what they consider unfair media coverage of the president. Um, there's certainly a lot of concern about what they consider unfair media coverage of Kamala Harris. If anything, she's gotten a worse uh, you know, treatment than Joe Biden has. Uh, is this a serious problem they, they see in the White House and what's behind it? Well, I can't speak to whether they see it's a serious problem or not. Uh, what's behind it is it's, uh, can you think of the last vice president that got really good press? Um, and I, I, I can't. <laughs> uh, maybe Al Gore didn't get terrible press, but uh, what did we know about Dan Quayle? He got a, a, a strange doll from uh, South America or Central America or someplace. Uh, he can't spell potato. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so this this is this is the life of the vice yeah. president. That it comes with the job of being demeaned and being ridiculed, etc. Uh, now, re- regarding the 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 press that the uh, the president gets, I think what they see, probably correctly so is that he's being treated as a normal president. In other words, everything that goes wrong is his fault. And right now, you know, with the uh, resurgence of the coronavirus and inflation and and uh, and even though the uh, the jobs picture is looking pretty good, then no one's paying attention to that because of the inflation. But, mm-hmm. you know, if that turns around, he'll get credit for that. In fact, he got a lot of credit for the six, first six months of his presidency just for not being Donald Trump. But <laughs> I, I, I think... I think that's what they what they see is that he's being compared to previous presidents, not mm-hmm. the last one, but the ones before that. Right. He can't get his bill passed. He's uh, he's not really a good communicator. He doesn't look great. He, he looks tired. What's with that cough? And meanwhile, the last guy tried to overthrow democracy. Right. And so <laughs> they think everything should be compared to that standard. And they probably have a point about that, given that he's still the leader of the Republican Party. So, you know, I, I get it. But on the other hand, um, you know, uh, the press corps is what it is. And it's it's going to have new content. Content is king every day. And if that day is the day that Joe Biden and Joe Manchin had a discussion and nothing got resolved, then that's the story. So, Jason, the other inside the beltway of political infighting, if you will, that caught my attention this week was Donald Trump has been on a relentless effort to depose uh, and knock out uh, Mitch McConnell from his post as Senate minority leader. Um, and But yet so far, with all of Donald Trump's efforts, not one Republican senator has called for Mitch McConnell to step down, and only two Republican Senate candidates around the country have picked that up as part of their campaign pledge. Um so McConnell uh, beating Trump? What does it's, that tell us? 
it's yeah i i mean it's it's a little um it's it is kind of an interesting situation because like you know you look at the this weird hold that trump has on on his supporters and then you and and you see the you know i mean it, it's not something that i understand but i do get that like trump has this charisma that appeals to to people uh it doesn't appeal to uh, a lot of people i know or myself uh but i get that and then you see mcconnell who's like sort of the anti-charisma guy uh and 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 you know, he, he is everything that Trump is not. And yet he has a potentially more ironclad, uh, sort of, uh, sense of loyalty among his, uh, like, you know, his Senate caucus. That may be because that job sucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and most people don't want it <laughs> and, 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 and they realize how difficult it is. Um, I mean, a lot, uh, even, even some of the more hard charging young Turks, you know, in the, in the, uh, Republican caucus, don't understand Senate procedure, don't understand how the place works nearly as well as McConnell will. And they may never get that either. So, I mean, you know, he, he has the job of kind of keeping the caucus together and keeping the trains running on time. They certainly don't want to be there late at night uh, and in, in doing these things. So it, it's a little bit of that. And then also let's not, the last thing is that McConnell raises an incredible amount of money and he dispenses a lot, an incredible amount of money to their campaigns uh, and, and supports them. So all those boring, you know, kind of governance and campaigning things, McConnell knows how to, how to, you know, hit every last mark. Mm. Uh, well, and he's been doing it uh, so far. All right. We said we were going to talk about Chris Wallace and the media. Now is the time. Um, I guess, Melanie, if it were not Fox News and if it were not Chris Wallace, uh, nobody would give a damn. But because it is Chris Wallace and because it is Fox News, this was big news this week. Well, I think because Chris Wallace played a role in the in the Fox universe in a way that I think other anchors at other channels didn't quite play that role. I mean, so often when I think there was a lot of criticism about Fox's primetime lineup, for example, and the partisanship um, and uh, just sometimes the misinformation that we would see from that lineup, so often Fox could point to Chris Wallace and say, but this is a real newsman. I mean, this is somebody who really does uh, conduct his show in a way that sort of aligns with with journalistic standards. And so the fact that that Fox can no longer point to Chris Wallace as being part of their lineup, I think really um, affects their their branding in some sense. Now, will viewers of the channel care very much? I'm, I'm not so sure. It maybe feels like a little bit more of a, a, a media conversation um, and a beltway conversation. But that said, I think that there was so many times where the channel pointed to Wallace as sort of a reputational laundering um, in a way that I don't think that other anchors serve that role uh, for, say, a CNN or an MSNBC. Uh, and the second thing is just in terms of the media story, the fact that he was jumping to CNN streaming, I think, really does talk about how the industry is changing and the fact that CNN is going all in in their streaming uh, platform, the fact that they've made some high-profile hires there. I mean, I do think that we are potentially looking at a remake of, of the industry. And so there's both a, a political story here, but also an industry story. And so if you're interested at all in sort of the business of news media, you were paying a lot of attention. Right. So, Jason, uh, Chris Wallace is gone. Stephen Hayes, uh, as his contributor, also stepped down, as well as Jonah Goldberg. Who's left at Fox? With any credibility, I, mean, I should say. I mean, I, I think that Brett Baer's uh, um, reputation precedes him. I mean, he is a very solid uh, newsman. Um, but he, he, I mean, 
no offense to him. He, he is not Chris Wallace. I mean, like there is not a, there it's, it's difficult to find an analog for Chris Wallace because you have this, you know, incredibly, um, uh, sort of accomplished and articulate and smart and, uh, you know, guy who's also Mike Wallace's kid. (laughs) So, I mean, he has like, like this legacy glow, uh, to one of the most revered newsmen of all time. Uh, and then he has his own thing and he also like backed it up. So I, I think that it, it's not that there aren't journalists at, at Fox news. There are a dwindling number of them, uh, but they can, they have a hiring, they have an HR you know program that can reach out to people and hire as many as they want, but they, it'll be interesting to see where they go because obviously they get a lot of advertising and a lot of viewers from the likes of Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and, and so forth. So um, I don't know if, if uh, how comfortable people like Bear are as the, the sort of the last folks, you know, huh, like associated right. with like, you know, being straight news people. But um, it, it's a it's a it is a it is certainly a, a, a problem for anybody who might be tuning in. Uh, it, to think like I'm going to get some news or as, as Melanie said, like there are fewer people for uh, uh, reputation laundering, which I love as a, an expression. Thank you. Melanie. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you did not include Jerry Rivers, by the way, on your list of uh, 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 credible journalists at uh, Fox News. But uh, he's the one that Sean, Geraldo is the one that uh, Sean Hannity always puts on, right, when he wants to show that we've got, yeah, we got some real <laughs> progressives here, some real serious journalists. Sharice, uh, 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 in addition to Chris Wallace stepping down, uh, Brian Williams a week ago said his sayonara as well, uh, and he did, unlike Chris Wallace, he did not hold back. Uh, he really let loose on what he thinks is a situation in America today, unusual for a TV anchor uh, to be so outspoken. But here is Brian Williams. For the first time in my 62 years, my biggest worry is for my country. The truth is I'm not a liberal or a conservative. I'm an institutionalist. I believe in this place and in my love of country, I yield to no one. But the darkness on the edge of town has spread to the main roads and highways and neighborhoods. It's now at the local bar and the bowling alley, at the school board and the grocery store. And it must be acknowledged and answered for. Grown men and women who swore an oath to our Constitution, elected by their constituents, possessing the kinds of college degrees I could only dream of, have decided to join the mob and become something they are not, while hoping we somehow forget who they were. They've decided to burn it all down with us inside. That should scare you to no end as much as it scares an aging volunteer fireman. So, Sharice, I know a lot of Democrats who said, boy, I wish we had a Democratic leader who could speak so forcefully and clearly. Uh, Proper role for Brian Williams? In this case, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if, if you've seen my coverage, I've been um, focused on January 6th and why it happened. And it happened because of one guy, Donald Trump, right? 232 years of elections, only one loser has decided, oh, no, well, I'm going to overthrow our form of republic rather than leave peacefully. And that's unacceptable. You know, journalist, firefighter, uh, garbage collector, this is, this is a representative democracy, and one of the rules is you would buy by the results of an election, and he failed to do that, doesn't want to do it, and he's being enabled 
by all kinds of people, including, I must say, a lot of people in the political press uh, in order to retain access. That's not right. And uh, Brian Williams is 100% on uh, when, he, when he said those things, and I wish others would say them as well. And Melanie, what I heard in Brian Williams was sort of a plea to fellow journalists, right, to um, uh, not to give this uh, either or situation, but really to take sides here. I think that that uh, the sort of conventions of journalism are really being sort of tested in this moment, right? Because I do think that there was sometimes this uh, pretty lazy framing, to be to be sure, which was kind of on, on the one hand, on the other hand. And I think that obviously, yeah, to yeah. Sharisha's point, this is not a time where we can sort of say, um, you know, here here are two strains of American thought, and they are they are both equally valid and and, and equivalent to each other. Um, but I also know this as a reporter that's out in the field, and that 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 there is this. Um, there is a sense of how do we reach as many people as possible in our reporting and a sense of sometimes calling things out the way that they are um, because of this hyperpolarized climate then, then almost automatically turns off a gigantic segment of this country in terms of, of, of regarding this reporting as truthful. Um, and it's this real paradox, I think, for the news media, which is in, in calling things as they actually are, which is really fundamentally what our job is, we have now um, kind of as a society been so con conditioned to seek out news that reinforces our prior biases that a lot of people, if, if reality doesn't jibe with their worldview, is just going to try and tune out on reality. And not only that, but denounce the people who are reporting on reality as being biased. And so I think that there is um, uh, it's it's this really uh, impossible situation, I think, for reporters. And quite frankly, it's something that that I think that uh, some cynical people uh, in politics can really take advantage of and, and manipulate. And so uh, I think that what Brian Williams sort of clarion call is definitely the, the, the voice of somebody who is also not going to be serving in that role, at least, at, you know, in, in the right. current moment. Um, it's a lot harder for people who are who are trying to make sure that they're not just talking to people who already um think that they they agree with them and i and I, and i think that that struggle is where a lot of journalists find themselves right now is trying to to reach as many people as possible um even if they don't necessarily like what's being reported yeah jason what was your reaction when you heard brian williams i mean i i think that it's still a chilling um sort of moment to even even now to you know like a, with a few days uh, it, to to hear the words because they do ring true and i i think that the the thing to you know, to Melanie's point about like how, how we approach our jobs. I mean, I think that a lot of, you know, obviously Williams has a, a lot of um, experience, you know, in, in covering politics, but we all do in, in our own ways. It's a struggle because, you know, the strain the the people like Trump have always been around in history, but they've never had this kind of voice and they've never had this kind of enabling, um, you know, Trump by himself could not do this. Uh, you know, could could not have won the presidency, could not have done what he did as president, could not have done January 6th without enabling by the likes of Mark Meadows and Mike Pence and, and so forth. And that's that's the most disturbing thing to me is that people like Trump, you know, are, you know, they're replete in history. Uh, but but good people sort of team up and say, like, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to overthrow the government. We're not going to allow people to be put in cages and on the, on the border and, and families separated. Um, and, and that just didn't happen. And it continues not to happen. And that's the, that's the real depressing legacy of this is that the Republican party writ large does not want to deal with this. They don't want to take them on. 
uh, and and that's why he's still so powerful. Bill, if I could jump in here with one other item here, real quick. Uh, you know, as as a young journalist, I was taught, and I, think, I assume a lot others were. When you go to a school board meeting, a city council meeting, and they attempt to go to executive session in order to close off uh, the the public, it's your responsibility to stand up and say, as a member of uh, the media and the public, and and an employee of such and such news organization, I object to this, and please hold off until we can get our lawyers. Now, th- this is not something that. I was just taught this was like most of my cohorts. And so if we can like argue for our our self-interest and the interests of the public in situations like that, we sure as hell can argue for the sake of democracy in in a situation like we find ourselves in today. Uh, And that's it for today's panel. Sharice Date, Jason Dick, Melanie Mason, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your insights. We won't let you go, however, before uh, we just ask you, you know, with all this stuff that we cover every week, there's always one story that makes us stop in our tracks and at least think about it, laugh about it, cry about it, whatever. Uh, We call it our favorite story of the week. Um, Melanie Mason, what caught your attention? This is cheating a little bit because this is actually a story that ran in June, but because oh. <laughs> it's the end of the end of the year and people are doing sort of their their year end reviews. Oh, uh, uh, that's fair. The, the LA Times um, has put together their their sort of uh, uh, best of our sort of narrative writing. We have this uh, feature called Column One, which is really kind of the best of the best for our writing. And there was a feature by my colleague Maria Laganga um, back in June about. Uh, Carl, who was a worker in a hospital who um, collects the bodies of COVID victims. Um, and it is, yes, it's it's a hard read, but I have to say that even for people who are feeling um, really exhausted by COVID coverage, it is written in such a way that is so um, sensitive and affirming and, and really kind of lovely. Um, and I would just say for anybody who is interested in really, really great writing and who can power past what is, I think, all of our COVID fatigue to really appreciate some of the stories that went uncovered. Um, Maria's piece is just truly wonderful. So I cannot uh, recommend it enough. And it's under stories that stayed with us um, on our on our homepage. So I would I would encourage people to take a look at that. All right. We'll find it there. Thank you. Sharice Date, your favorite story of the week? Maria Laganga, I remember her. I interned in that office in Orange County. When she was no a way. This was like in the mid-80s. Yeah, it's wild. Uh, Bill, I have no favorite stories. I hate reading. You know, I don't even know why I'm in this business. Uh, but I must right. say that all the stuff about Mark Meadows, uh, my favorite story about Mark Meadows is, is kind of old, but it speaks to this exactly. After he tried a coup against John Boehner, he went in and begged for forgiveness, getting on his knees in the speaker's office. So that that's all you need to know about Mark Meadows and explains his behavior in this coup as well. That tells you a lot about him. All right, Jason, uh, it's probably some movie that none of us have seen. You, it was your favorite story, no? Uh, that that is uh, that is correct, Bill. Uh, oh. as, as I said, I am I am going with a movie one, and uh, it's uh, it's it's a shout out to one of Melanie's colleagues at the Los Angeles Times. Um, I was fortunate enough to see uh, uh, a sneak preview on 70 millimeter of Licorice Pizza, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, <laughs> new movie with Alana Haim and Cooper Hoffman. It's it's a really good movie. And then in the LA Times, uh, one of their uh, arts and culture writers, Deborah Vankin, she wrote a, a, a story about um, the poster art and the and the artist, this woman in Cat Reader. Uh, who uh, whose father came to the, this country in in the seventies from Peru, 
And it, it's a it's a it's a really nice story about how like you know how she got involved in or how how she decided to like write uh you know like do up this poster. I mean, a lot of movie poster art is photography based. That we yeah. don't do a lot of artistic things, and and this poster in particular has gone kind of viral. Uh, people quite literally like rip it off walls and so forth because they want it because it's so fun. It's an it's an illustration of the cast, and it's just a fun light story and after reading you know mark meadows texts and so forth i just needed (laughs) i needed some uh some some light uh Uh, and and sort of affirming thing and this is this is a fun this is a fun story i'm I'm glad you found it and my favorite story of the week is i know donald trump has a big smile on his face because we discovered this week that there was voter fraud in the 2020 election of course ap this week reported that they did a survey of uh, the six battleground states that Trump, where Trump challenged the vote count. Uh, and out of those six battleground states and 311,257 votes cast, there were only 475 possible cases of voter fraud. But despite that, in Florida, they found three solid cases of voter fraud. They were all from the villages, which is a senior citizen retirement community in Florida that Donald Trump visited uh, twice during the campaign. All three of these seniors were arrested for voting in more, more than once and in more than one state, and all three of them were Donald Trump supporters. So, <laughs> yes, Donald Trump, there was voter fraud. You'll be pleased about that, but you may not be pleased that they were all your people. <laughs> And that's it for today's podcast, for today's roundtable. Thanks again to uh, Jason Dick from CQ Roll Call, Sharice Stockte from HuffPost, Melanie Mason from the LA Times. And thanks to all of you uh, for joining us. Take care of yourselves. Uh, enjoy these this holiday season. Uh, and then come back and see us, please, on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. 